Welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, and in today's episode, we're going to discuss the tragic story of a president's sister and her lobotomy, a case of early 20th century Photoshop or photo doctoring, and why it's not okay to use the term retarded. Uh, you might be asking, what do all of these things have in common? And they all relate to developmental disorders. In this episode, we're going to discuss developmental disorders broadly and then specifically narrow in on the diagnosis of intellectual disability. And these are topics I'm very passionate about. Uh, I completed a postdoc experience with the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center, a bowling center for developmental disabilities, and also a practicum in graduate school with the bowling center. Um, so the full name was Bowling Center for Developmental Disabilities, which might leave you asking, what is a developmental disability? And a developmental disability or disorder is a disorder that starts at a young age and tends to persist into adulthood. These disorders, like other disorders we've talked about, create problems in academic, social, or occupational functioning. And we're going to find that many of these dis developmental disorders are going to be comorbid with one another, meaning that they often co-occur. Uh, like specific learning disorder and ADHD are often going to be comorbid or co-occur with one another. So I just threw out uh, two disorders there. Uh, you're probably asking what diagnoses fall under the category of developmental disability. Well, in the DSM-5, developmental disabilities are called neurodevelopmental disorders, and they include intellectual disabilities, communication disorders, autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, specific learning disorder, and motor disorders. And to make diagnoses of these disorders and to treat them, you often need a team of experts across fields, and we call these interdisciplinary teams. So like with communication disorders, you'll probably need a speech and language pathologist on the team. Or with motor disorders, you might need an occupational therapist and or a physical therapist on the team. And at the Bowling Center, we would have interdisciplinary teams of psychologists, social workers, developmental pediatricians, dietitians, speech and language pathologists, and occupational therapists. And it was really neat working with professionals from a bunch of different areas and seeing how everyone conceptualizes a case and how they lend their unique talents to each case. And I sort of miss working in that environment because I learned so much from all of the different fields. Anyways, uh, there are lots of interdisciplinary centers for developmental disabilities around the country. Um, the Bowling Center is part of AUCD, which is the Association of University Centers on Disabilities. And in that, there's a program called LEND, which stands for Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities. And there are 52 LEND programs in 44 states. And if you're looking at the names of some of these programs, if you've Googled LEND, you might notice some patterns. Uh, there's the Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. There's the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center. There's the Eunice Kennedy Schreiber Center in Boston. And there's the Rose F. Kennedy Center in New York City. You'll also notice if you visit these centers that there are often plaques thanking the Kennedy family for funds and helping open these centers. Uh, and you might also notice that many of these centers were founded in the 1960s and 1970s. So what's up with that? And there's a tragic story behind it. There's a tragic story behind the Kennedy family's association with developmental disabilities. Uh, Rosemary Kennedy was the oldest uh, sister of John F. Kennedy and also of Robert Kennedy and Ted Kennedy. And when Rosemary was born, she suffered from anoxia or lack of oxygen uh, as she became stuck in the birth canal for hours. And birth trauma is often associated with developmental disabilities. 
And it's one of the reasons why I ask questions about labor and delivery during my developmental history interview. We look at things like anoxia and whether forceps or vacuum or suction were used in delivery. Anyways, Rosemary was delayed in reaching many of her major developmental milestones. I also ask questions about uh, developmental milestones, like when children begin to talk and walk uh, in my developmental history interview. Uh, Rosemary struggled in school and would never progress past fifth grade work in her educational career. And she also had a low IQ. By today's standards, she would likely qualify as having an intellectual disability. Uh, she often struggled socially too. In one famous incident, she made a gaffe in greeting Queen Elizabeth II and King George VI, and she tripped and almost fell over. And this was very embarrassing to the Kennedy family, which had high political aspirations. As she became older, she would become frustrated and had today what we might characterize as meltdowns. In an attempt to treat these disruptive outbursts, she underwent a lobotomy at age 23. And we discuss lobotomies in episode two of this podcast, if you're interested. Uh, unfortunately, following the lobotomy, Rosemary's social skills regressed, and she struggled even more with speaking and walking. And she also struggled with incontinency. And such a tragic story. She was she's really beautiful. Google pictures of her. Uh, she's pretty striking. Anyways, after the unsuccessful lobotomy, like many families, the Kennedys decided to tuck Rosemary away and institutionalize her at the St. Coletta School for Exceptional Children. And for almost 20 years, she didn't really see her family. Eventually, her family sort of reaccepted her, and she lived out the rest of her life until 2005 uh, after living with various family members. So, tragic story, but there is some good that came out of it. One of the legacies is the founding of various hospitals and centers for people with developmental disabilities around the country, and this is why we see so many bearing the Kennedy name. Also, her younger sister, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, likely founded the Special Olympics because of Rosemary. Uh, Rosemary Kennedy's story highlights how society changed over the past 50 years and how also in some ways it stayed the same. Uh, as mentioned in the second episode of this podcast, we've largely moved away from institutionalization. Now we aim for what we call a least restrictive environment. People that are in public education or special education are probably very familiar with the term least restrictive environment. It means that people should be allowed to function in the most free environment possible while still receiving support. So it used to be people with developmental disabilities were largely segregated from society. They would often take different buses to school if they were even allowed to go to school at all. And at school, they were partitioned away from other children. They would eat lunch and attend classes away from other children at the school. And sadly, in some of the older schools that I would visit as a school psychologist, some of the special education classrooms would be tucked away in the basement of the school. And this was a legacy of this kind of segregation. Uh, now we aim for the least restrictive environment. If a child is just struggling with math, they might be pulled out of class for math help, uh, but they'll have the rest of the school day with their same age peers. Uh, if a child has intellectual disability, they might have their academic subjects separate from other children, but should still be able to take the same bus and eat lunch in the same cafeteria as other children. The least restrictive environment is supposed to be supportive, but allow the child the greatest freedom possible. Uh, we also haven't changed in some ways. Uh, there's still a lot of family stress uh, for families of people with developmental disabilities. It's not just a Kennedy issue. When I sit down with a parent and explain to them that their child has a developmental disability, I'm always sure to have Kleenex on hand. Uh, I've had some parents describe the reaction as similar to grief, similar to the death of the dreams of a child that they had imagined. 
in my five or so years as a psychologist, it doesn't get any easier talking about this with parents. And receiving a diagnosis is just the beginning. Receiving treatment for a developmental disability can be expensive and time-consuming. Some therapies cost hundreds of dollars per hour, and some therapies require 10 or more hours a week. If you live in a rural area, you might commute an hour each way, every day, for therapy that costs hundreds of dollars. And this can add strain to any family system. Often families feel like they lack support, that they're alone, sort of on an island. And this has been alleviated to some degree by the internet, as there are so many support groups on Facebook and internet message boards that allow families to collaborate and communicate with one another. Uh, while stressful, it is a myth, though, that divorce rates for children with developmental disabilities are upwards of 80%. Uh, this just hasn't shown to be true in research. Though I have seen many families that unfortunately experience divorce due in part to the strain and stress we talked about a minute ago. Now, I thought we might transition to talking more specifically about intellectual disability. And I'm planning on having episodes uh, devoted entirely to other neurodevelopmental disabilities, like autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, and specific learning disorders. Uh, but this one is dedicated to intellectual disability. So intellectual disability. It's got intellectual in the name. So intelligence is going to be a central aspect to this diagnosis. And intelligence is a super sticky issue in psychology, even though we've been formally measuring it for 115 years. And the first formal intelligence test was developed by Alfred Binet and Theodore Simone, but it's spelled Simon, S-I-M-O-N, and Binet is spelled with the silent T on the end, B-I-N-E-T. Uh, and Binet and Theodore Simon developed the first test in 1905. Uh, Theodore Simone, uh, you have two chipmunk names in one. Uh, you're just missing Alvin there. Anyways, Binet and Simone developed a test in Paris, France to identify children for special education in the Paris school system. Uh, it was a pretty crude test by today's standards, but the legacy lives on. A version of the Binet-Simone came to America about 10 years after it was developed, thanks to the work of Stanford psychologist Lewis Terman. And his version became known as the Stanford Binet. And the Stanford Binet is still around. It's in its fifth edition now, and last year I actually co-authored a manuscript on the validity of the Binet. Um, they should be coming out with the sixth edition, as the fifth edition is pretty dated now. Uh, the fifth edition is 17 years old. Uh, I've given a bunch of Binets. Uh, it's a pretty fun test to give. There are a lot of uh, manipulatives in giving it to children, like little toys. We call them manipulatives, but they're part of the test kit. So there's puzzle pieces and toy shoes and spoons and blocks and such. Anyways, intelligence. It's a controversial subject. Binet in 1905 said, intelligence is a fundamental faculty, the alteration or the lack of which is the utmost importance for a practical life. This faculty is judgment, otherwise called good sense, practical sense, initiative, the faculty of adapting oneself to, uh, oneself to circumstances, to judge well, to comprehend well, to reason well. These are the essential activities of intelligence. Uh, so that's Binet's definition. I didn't read that with the French accent. Uh, but haven't you heard before, the longer the definition of something, probably the less we actually understand the concept. Uh, intelligence might be one of these things. Uh, in 1988, over a thousand experts in intelligence, academics and psychologists, were administered a 16-page questionnaire to gauge their definition of intelligence. And this questionnaire was broken into six sections, asking about the nature of intelligence, the heritability of intelligence, race, class, and cultural differences in IQ, the use of intelligence testing, uh, professional activities, and involvement with intelligence testing. 
And over 95% of the 1,000 plus experts surveyed said that abstract reasoning and thinking, problem solving ability, and capacity to acquire knowledge were important to intelligence. So this was nearly unanimous. Less consensus was found in things like achievement motivation. 19% of experts said that achievement motivation was important to intelligence. Uh, also less consensus for goal directedness. Only 25% of experts said goal directedness was important to intelligence. And then creativity wasn't thought to be that important. Uh, only a little under 60% of experts said creativity was important to intelligence. Uh, so six years later, in 1994, 52 prominent experts in intelligence issued a uh, definition of intelligence in the Wall Street Journal. And this was their definition. Intelligence is a very general mental capability that, among other things, involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and learn from experience. It's not merely book learning, a narrow academic skill, or test-taking smarts. It reflects a broader and deeper capability for comprehending our surroundings, catching on in quotation marks, making sense of in quotation marks, uh, making sense of things, or quotation marks, figuring out what to do. So this is another long definition, and it's filled with lots of idioms, uh, the idioms in quotation marks, like catching on, figuring out, and such. So anyways, hardly a simple or very clear definition. So intelligence is distributed on a normal curve, or Gaussian, or Gaussian curve. And it's kind of ghost-shaped, to give it a Halloween flair, uh, the paranormal distribution. Uh, most people's IQ, and IQ stands for intellectual quotient, um, it's an estimate of intelligence, IQ is, uh, which is sort of a latent construct that we can never uh, perfectly or directly measure. Anyways, most people's IQ is right around 100. 100 is the mean score. Like a score on a college exam would be the highest, a score of 100 on a college exam would be like the highest score you could get without extra credit. But in IQ, a score of 100 is only average. Um, so 100 would be the center of the curve. It would subdivide the ghost shape into left and right. And if you imagine under the curve shape, that's where all the scores would pile up. So lots of scores piling up in the middle and less scores on what we call the tails, the far left and right ends of the distribution. Um, most people, almost 70% of people, have an IQ between 85 and 115. And we don't really get concerned about IQ unless it's around 70 or below, which would be the lowest 3% of the population. Uh, on the flip side of the curve, a score of 130 would be the top 3% of the population. So an IQ below 70 is going to qualify you for intellectual disability, which you might see abbreviated ID. But it's only one of three qualifications. I've seen people with IQs in their 60s that don't qualify for a diagnosis of ID. And here's why. Deficits in intellectual functioning is only the first criteria. The second diagnostic criteria is deficits in adaptive behavior, and the third diagnostic criteria is tied to developmental stage. So adaptive behavior, that second criteria, you might be asking what that is. The textbook definition of adaptive behavior is a person's effectiveness in meeting the standards expected for their age or by their cultural group. So it's essentially daily living skills, the ability to get by or thrive in one's environment. And it's age-related, meaning that you're only being compared to other people your age. A three-year-old might be expected to use the toilet and to color with crowns. Crayons, crowns, I say crayons different. Uh, but a 30-year-old might be expected to cook using a stove or to file their taxes. Uh, so adaptive behavior is age-related. 
And adaptive behavior is also defined by the expectations and standards of other people. It's usually a product of culture. We have certain things in our geographical location and the time in which we live that we're expected to be able to do. We might be expected to use a computer when we're 15 years old, but 300 years ago, a 15 year old wouldn't use a computer. And that was okay because society didn't expect it, obviously, because there were no computers. And 300 years ago, a 15 year old might be expected to know how to churn butter. And I have no idea how to do that. So I would lack adaptive skills by the 300 year old standard. Uh, the psychologist Barbara Rogoff wrote a book called The Cultural Nature of Human Development. In her book, she has like an 11-month-old toddler standing with a machete. And this is in the F.A. culture in the Congo. And 11-month-olds are expected in the F.A. culture to use a machete. Whereas if you gave an 11-month-old a machete in the United States, you're probably looking at a Department of Children's Services call. Adaptive behavior is also defined by typical performance and not ability. In talking with parents, I'm interested in what kids actually do and not what they can do. Junior might be able to cover their mouth when they cough. That's physically pretty easy for most people to do. Uh, but do they actually do it? So with a diagnosis of intellectual disability, it's generally an IQ below 70 and also a score of below 70 on a measure of adaptive skills. We have standardized measures of adaptive skills like the Vineland or the ABAS or the CIBAR. And I conducted a continuing education for psychologists on the Vineland a few years ago. And the legacy of the Vineland is traced back to Henry Goddard, who was the director of the Vineland Training School for Feeble-Minded Girls and Boys in Vineland, New Jersey in the early 1900s. So quick side trip to the early 20th century Photoshop story I mentioned in the show intro. Henry Goddard was director of the school, and he was also a eugenicist. He used his research as director of the Vineland School to argue against immigrants and criminals and to argue for segregation of the intellectually disabled. As part of his eugenics push, Goddard published a case study called the Kalakak family. In it, he traces the family genealogy all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, way back in the 1700s, the Kalakak family split. Martin Kalakak was a Revolutionary War veteran, and he married a Quaker woman. And they had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who were intelligent, upstanding citizens. But Martin also had an affair with a barmaid, and this led to an inferior branch of the family, with descendants who were feeble-minded, sexually immoral, alcoholic, and degenerate. Goddard also included photographs of then-current family members, both of the upstanding branch and of the, quote, inferior branch. And he doctored some of the pictures of the inferior branch. He shaded under the eyes to give the family some dysmorphology, some bodily features commonly associated with genetic intellectual disability. And the pictures weren't the only thing that were doctored. Uh, this was probably a work of fiction that was made to look scientific. Even the family name, Kalakak, is a mixture of the Greek kalos and kakos. Kalos for beauty and kakos for bad. Sort of a yin and yang family, uh, but not the yin-yang twins. Uh, anyways, back to intellectual disability. It also has to adversely affect your life. If you have a 65 IQ and you're getting by just fine, no disorder, it's no diagnosis. You also have to have it before the age of 18. So someone with a traumatic brain injury that uh, it affects their IQ in adulthood. That's not technically intellectual disability. Um, there's also um, accompanying deficits in communication, social participation, and independent living. And we classify ID as mild, which accounts for an overwhelming 90% of cases. 
severe and profound. And with profound, you're almost in a vegetative state. Uh, there are many risk factors for intellectual disability. There are genetic syndromes like Down syndrome and Fragile X syndrome, and those account for about 25% of ID diagnoses. Uh, this is why it's important to have genetic screening and the involvement of developmental pediatricians on our interdisciplinary diagnosis teams. Other risk factors include brain malformations, maternal disease, teratogens, uh, birth trauma, social deprivation, and exposure to lead and mercury. And talking prevalence, it's more common in males than females by a ratio of 1.5 to 1. And it's also more likely to be diagnosed as severe in males. You might also encounter a diagnosis of general developmental delay, GDD. General developmental delay is for children under the age of 5 who haven't met developmental milestones in several areas of intellectual development, but these children's intelligence hasn't been assessed or might not be able to be assessed reliably. Uh, intellectual disability is a sort of heavy, permanent diagnosis. So if there's a chance the child might outgrow it, or the child hasn't received any interventions before, or has had social deprivation, then we might give them time to see if they catch up, and then reassess after a period of time before pulling the trigger with an ID diagnosis. Right. So the diagnosis of global developmental delay disappears on the child's fifth birthday. A global developmental delay is the DSM-5 diagnosis. I know here in Tennessee, the Department of Education has a diagnosis of developmental delay that extends to the age of nine instead of the age of five. Um, another thing we haven't really talked about, and you might have heard it throughout the episode, is that intellectual disability has gone by a lot of different names over the years. Uh, some of the previous names like cretin, uh, idiot, imbecile, moron, and feeble-minded used to be scientific but are now obviously politically incorrect. Goddard School was called the Vineland Training School for Feeble-Minded Girls and Boys. Uh, the school that Rosemary Kennedy attended, St. Coletta School for Exceptional Children, used to be called St. Coletta Institute for Backward Youth. And that we change these names is called a euphemistic treadmill. Intellectual disability used to be called mental retardation in the DSM-4. And this changed with the publication of the DSM-5. And also in 2010, then-President Obama signed Rosa's Law. And Rosa's Law said that federal legislation would hereafter refer to mental retardation as intellectual disability. And so this is why it's not okay to use the term retarded anymore. It's outdated and has become part of the euphemistic treadmill. Uh, speaking of treadmills, that reminds me of running. And I haven't given you an update on my marathon training lately. Um, this past Saturday, I ran a 10K down in Hernando, Mississippi. Uh, my wife thinks I'm crazy for doing this because uh, Hurricane Delta was going on. Uh, so it was windy. Uh, the course was pretty hilly, but it wasn't really rainy. Um, I don't know. Maybe running in a hurricane should be diagnosable. Anyways, uh, this coming Saturday, I'm doing a half marathon in Greenwood, Mississippi. And it's only going to be my second half marathon. So hopefully I'm prepped enough. Um, I'd really like to break the two-hour mark for this one. My first half marathon, I was so close. I ran in two hours, one minute, the spring. So close, one minute away. So I'll let you know how it goes in the next episode. Anyways, I'm out of time for this one. I have a few mailbag questions. Uh, and keep sending me mailbag questions to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. Uh, but I was kind of long-winded here. I told you I was passionate about this topic. So anyways, I'll address the mailbag questions uh, in the next episode. Uh, until then, take care and stay well.